AFIO Now is presented by Northwest Financial Advisors, where our world revolves around you. Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior intelligence officers and those who write about them. Today, I have a very interesting guest. His name is Jimmy Burns, OBE. He is a award-winning British uh, author and journalist. He actually worked for a long time for the Financial Times as a correspondent on security and intelligence matters. He has degrees from London College and the London School of Economics. And he has a brand new book out called A Faithful Spy about Walter Bell, a former MI6 and MI5 officer. Jimmy, welcome to AFIO Now. Hello, Jim, and thanks very much for having me. It's a great honor to to be speaking to you across the pond, as they say. So there's a wealth of information about Walter Bell and his period of service in your book. What kind of sources of information were you able to access to write the book? Well, I, I can't I, I can't go better than than quote the eminent uh, Professor Peter Hennessy, who, when I told him uh, what my sources were for the book, said, Jimmy, you found treasure, uh, which I thought was he hit the nail on the head. I wouldn't have been able to write this book. Uh, and indeed, Walter Bell's human story would have remained untold had it not been for his widow, Catherine Tatty Spatz, the, the oldest daughter of General Spatz, who, following Walter's death in 2004, called me over to their flat in London and basically passed on to me a, a cache of documents, which in complete disorder across a whole series of boxes. And I went away and started looking to them. I just couldn't believe my luck, basically. But but they were basically personal papers that Walter had kept stashed over entire lifetime and, and career. Basically, uh, his own private memoirs, his jottings, correspondence with two people in particular in his family, his mother and sister, uh, who he was very close to, and other friends in, in the community. Uh, and it was a real eye-opener for me. I have to, at this point, declare a personal friendship, uh, obviously, with my subject and with Tati. As you mentioned, my, my role at the FT for several years was covering intelligence, counterterrorism, and security. And I'd also been a foreign correspondent in various lands. I was in the Falklands War in Argentina. And it was in 1986, coming back from my post in Buenos Aires, that my late father said, I've got a, in very English terms, I've got a good friend who wants to meet you for lunch at the Travellers Club and wants to hear all about Argentina. And the rest is history, really, because there I met Walter Bell for the first time, and we established uh, an enduring friendship, despite being separated in age by decades. And really went on from there, because I became a very good friend of his. Neither uh, Tatty and Walter never had children, I became almost an adopted son to them. I think Walter sort of appreciated what I wrote in the FT and in other journals. He shared some of his life, but not not very much. But he was always a good advisor in terms of international politics and, and, and always willing to share some views. Evidently, I've also drawn on, on additional documentary material from the National Archives at Kew, uh, from the Churchill Archives in Cambridge, uh, and from other sources, because as you well know, we would say this as journalists, but you know, the, the very essence of intelligence is that you're na navigating through, through shadows, light and shadow, uh, and you've got to double check everything you're being told and, and find some sort of context uh, to make sure that you're not being taken up the wrong path. 
But uh, that was really the kind of the, 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 the sort of matrix, the, the backbone of my book remains his personal papers, without which uh, this book would not have been possible. Jimmy, tell our audience a little bit about Walter Bell's early life. Well, Walter, I would say, had a, a very eclectic uh, or, or, or colourful background. Just to, to put it succinctly, his ancestry, his, his grandfather was none, none other than the founder of the News of the World, which later in life became known as the, the Screws of the World, a, a sort of rather down-market tabloid. But at that time in, in the 19th century, it was quite a respectable Sunday newspaper. Uh, from then, his father broke with the ancestry and, and became an Anglican vicar. So he was born into uh, an Anglican vicarage, almost straight out of Trollope in Kent, and was brought up in, in the Anglican faith. But he was very much part of his generation, born in 1909, at the beginning of the twilight of empire, the British Empire, end of the Victorian era, the beginning of the Edwardian era. Uh, and, and obviously the build-up to First World War in his childhood. And then fast forward to his student days, like very much many of his generation, given the world that he was living in in the 30s, the rise of Nazism in particular, he became quite socialist in his views. He went to London School of Economics, and there came very much under the influence, influence of the great Marxist uh, theorist Walter Tulask. And he really kind of stumbled on, on MI6. This is a very British story, I suppose, but through his connections, uh, through his family connections, he was introduced by someone who happened to happen to know uh, someone in, in SIS at the time and found himself in what was then the headquarters of the secret headquarters of, of MI6 in Queen Anne's Gate, uh, a Georgian building behind Parliament Square. You can still go and see it. And he was ushered into this uh, potential world of, of of adventure. And he was offered at the age of 26, believe it or not, the the posting, a posting in New York. And uh, that probably will lead us into the next chapter of, of this conversation. Uh, but what was extraordinary among the papers was this very vivid, colourful memorandum or, or memoir that Walter kept about arriving and seeing the head of MI6 at the time, who was a sort of retired naval admiral, receiving him in his study, smoking cigars and saying, you know, why the hell do you want this job? And then being introduced to these secretaries, um, smoking craven A <clears throat> cigarettes. Sorry. I've lost my voice there. And being subjected to a, a very, a very instant training program, which found him going to New York within a matter of weeks. And don't, don't worry, I think my voice is coming back. This must be MI6 intervention. What was Walter's role in New York? And who were some of the influential people that he met there? Well, his posting in 1935, he arrives in, in, in New York in January 1935 was officially a very boring title called the Assistant Passport Officer. Of course, the Passport Office was at the time, for what is worth, the cover for the MI6 station in New York. He was under the leadership of a retired naval, naval captain called Captain Herbert Taylor, and he found himself in this office, number 626 Broadway, which some of you architectural historians will, will recall, was at the, the time a 32-floor pentagonal skyscraper in the center of Manhattan. The, uh, the uh, MI6 offices were quite discreet, although part of the consular service. And, and there, 
did Walter Bell begin his career? Describe briefly for our audience the role that MI6 played in helping to establish the OSS, and um, what part did Walter play in all of that? Well, before getting into the OSS, I think it's important to underline that the kind of work that that, that Walter was doing in the late 30s and, and the situation just to, uh, not that you're your eminent members need to be reminded, but but to arrive in 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 the sort of 1935 in the build up to to the outbreak of war for for the for, for Britain at least the, the the Brits were facing having quite apart from the appeasers in their own camp a, a very negative generally environment in the states where a majority according to the polls of Americans want nothing to do with getting into another European war. Uh, with their memories of the First World War. And so the key role uh, that was played by the New York office, certainly of MI6, uh, was a lot of, I would say, human intelligence in terms of developing relationships among people with influence in journalism, in in State Department, in in media, in Hollywood. And it's an extraordinary selection of people that the young Walter Bell, who was a, a, a very social person, uh, and had extremely good social skills and was a great social networker, managed to engage with, I mean, just to mention some names, you had people from Wall Street, uh, like Tom, Tommy Lamont of J.P. Morgan. You had Duncan Spencer, who was a senior executive at Fiduciary Trust Company. You had Robert Sherwood, the Pulitzer Prize playwright, who, as we well know, went on to become um, Roosevelt's speechwriter. And then sort of very colourful figures like, you know, New York society queens like Constant Cummings uh, and Hollywood stars like Merle Oberon and Leslie Howard, all of whom were incredibly pro uh, the British build-up to entering the war and were trying their best to influence American opinion. And in the midst of, of, of all that, you had some real, real deal breakers in terms of bringing all these people together, including David Bruce, who uh, will be our transition into the OSS part. The the legendary Victor Astor, who in his grand mansion in Manhattan would would have secret meetings with all all these eminent pro-Brits. And some people called it the room, uh, the famous room, where they all met and, and, and they plotted articles in the American media, who to try and influence in the American administration. And, and that was really a very, very important aspect of what the MI6 station was doing uh, during the 30s. And Walter Bell was absolutely in the middle of that. If we go to the USSS, among the papers, of course, that I discovered were two or three key bits of paper, as they say, more than just bits of paper. One was the citation, the official citation of Walter Bell's when he was given the, the U.S. Medal of Freedom after the war, uh, which was given to him by the then Colonel John Ackerman, who was a World War II veteran and the U.S. Air Attaché at the time in London. Uh, and I just, you know, just to read it, because it gives you a sense that Walter Bell, uh, in terms of his relationship with the OSS, was, wasn't just having a picnic. He was really quite up to something quite important. Uh, Walter F. F. Bell, British civilian for exceptionally meritorious achievement, which aided the United States in the prosecution of the war against the enemy in continental Europe from the 7th of December, 1941, 
to the 8th of May 1945. Throughout this period, he rendered inestimable service to the United States by directly supporting operations of a special unit in the European theater. Through his keen foresights, exceptional diplomacy, and outstanding devotion to his work, the cooperation between English and American services was highly productive, and the operations developed produced results which contributed materially to the Allied invasion of the continent and the defeat of the German armies. His commendable achievements merit the highest praise and recognition of the United States. Well, you can't do better than that, can you? And, and the other sort of complete kind of, for me, revelation when I was looking through all these boxes was a, a, a letter from uh, Bill Stevenson, who, of course, was the head of the British Security Coordination, uh, which was the outfit set up in May 1940 in New York to basically begin a relationship with the nascent American intelligence community. And here I'm talking about, you know, not, not just the future OSS, but obviously the FBI as well. And there we have an extraordinary letter written by Bill Stevenson, which has never seen the light of day, dated May the 8th, 1945, to directly to water, where Bill Stevenson writes, I mean, this is the MI6 key guy in New York from May 1940 onwards, is with the Americans at that end of the pond. Uh, so he writes, my dear Walter, now that the war in Europe is over, the purpose for which British security coordination was founded five years ago is virtually fulfilled. On this day of victory, therefore, I'm taking the opportunity to thank those who have rendered the organization of particular value. In terms of our own history, you were here, of course, considerably before the beginning of time. You had experience of working conditions and knowledge of essential details, which you placed unstintedly at my disposal. And on that account, I feel personally very much obligated to you. It's a letter that goes on for nearly two pages, but an ex extraordinary piece of uh, human history there, which I discovered. And the third bit of paper was, was, was a letter, personal letter, for none other than J. Edgar Hoover, which I discovered among Walter's papers. And I'm reading these for the first time, actually, in publicly in, in deference to your esteemed colleagues, uh, Jim. Dated November the 7th, 1942, strictly personal. To Walter Bell, from J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, Dear Mr. Bell, I have received your very gracious letter of November the 6th and hasten to assure you that my inability to arrange for a conference with you involved no personal reason. He had a, a stinking cold at the time for some reason. For the last several months, I have been out of Washington more than I have been in it. Uh, and for the last week, I have been confined to my house with a bad cold. When I received word that you were leaving on the 6th of December, 6th of November, that's when Walter Bell was moving back from the States uh, to London in the middle of the war, I did have hopes that I might be able to get down to the office yesterday so as to say goodbye to you personally. But I do want to take this opportunity to express to you my appreciation of your personal cooperation in all the matters of mutual interest. It is with regret that I learn that you're returning to London, but I hope that the separation will be but a physical one and that our close official relationship will continue. That's, that's pretty amazing. You know, that's three key, uh, key bits of paper which give you a sense of, of that Walter Bell, as Richard Love, the former MI6 chief, said in a uh, Chatham House-only private talk I gave at the Garrett Club in London just last week, 
describe Walter Bell. What he's describing the book is that an important book which uniquely describes an important cog in the UK's intelligence and security machinery through key events of the 20th century. Uh, and that's coming from the former head of SIS. Jimmy, tell our audience what special assignment Walter Bell was given in dealing with the FBI. Well, a special assignment of dealing with the FBI, some, again, your, some of your colleagues will know much more about this than me and, some, uh, and similarly eminent historian friends of mine on your side of the pond. But one of the big challenges he faced was dealing with the egos of Bill Stevenson, the security coordination, and, and Hoover. Hoover detested Stevenson. Stephen, as you know, developed a very relationship with Bill Donovan. And it was really a clash of egos, to a certain extent, between Stevenson and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, and sorry, between Stevenson and Hoover, which Walter Bell was entrusted uh, to try and navigate on behalf of British intelligence, because it was not in their interest to have us falling out with the FBI. And also, it was in our interest to, at the same time, uh, develop a, a very strong relationship with the nascent OSS. And Walter was in this extraordinarily uh, privileged position, really, of huge responsibility uh, of having a direct access to Hoover, having a direct access to Stevenson almost as his deputy, uh, and also having a direct access to the OSS, not just from through Donovan, but particularly through David Bruce, who, as you know, became the key man in London. So at a key moment in the development of British-American intelligence cooperation, uh, Walter was in the thick of it. So at the end of World War II, Walter Bell was posted back to London. Who were the members of the Cambridge spy ring that Walter came in touch with? And what were some of the results of that? Well, again, this is extraordinary kind of discovery. And, and it, won't, it won't sort of surprise you or, or indeed a anyone else listening of, of, of the quality of your, your members to realize that Walter was incredibly careful uh, not to leave too many traces about knowing any of the Cambridge Five, even in his personal papers. So in terms of finding out more of what his relationship with, was with any of them, I clearly had to rely partly on, on some of his papers, uh, but also on conversations I had with his widow, with Tatty, Tatty Spatz, uh, who had a very good memory of, of certain conversations, and also with, with other people who I can't particularly mention. But to, to cut to the quick of your, your question and the core of the question, the three, the three Cambridge spies he he knew and met. Let's take Burgess. I tell the story of, which is rather colourful and, and more anecdotal than, than substantial, but he got a call from Burgess. We're talking here halfway through the war, heading into sort of 1944, more, more than halfway through the war. Walter was obviously in London and Burgess rings him up out of the blue at the time he was working for the news department of the Foreign Office out of Senate House, where the Ministry of Information was, and Burgess was. And, and Burgess says, Walter, why don't we go on the Karl Marx pub crawl? The Karl Marx pub crawl uh, was because Karl Marx, this might not be known to very many people, but Karl Marx, when he was writing Das Kapital in Soho in London uh, and living up in Hampstead, after writing his latest tract, 
would hit the pubs of Tottenham Court Road and head off to uh, in the direction of North London uh, and go on a pub crawl, you know. And actually, anecdotally, uh, on occasions, used to get quite drunk and, and occasionally violent. So believe it or not, Water finds himself with Guy Burgess on the beginning of this of this trail of several pubs which still existed from Karl Marx's time. And and according to my source, who was tatty, by the time he got to the third pub, Burgess was so uh, drunk and or seemingly drunk and boring that Waters that cut cut the the trip short and just left. He found him obnoxious. He found him rude. Uh, he found him, as some drunks do, getting boring at the minute and really didn't have time for him. The um, the Philby connection, obviously, for all the reasons that you know, is more complex. And, you know, to this day, we don't know how many people uh, or to the extent within SIS, apart from the ones that have already been exposed, what their relationship was, Philby, how deep it went or didn't. But what, what I can do report in, 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 in the book is that Water, during World War II, when he was based back in London, liaising with the OSS, uh, as indeed Philby was in different sections, did have two meetings with, uh, with, with Philby. One, when Philby called him to his office and, and Water left in his memory, this sort of scene of this very personable colleague with his feet on the, on the desk, surrounded by documents uh, and telling Water what a bunch of idiots his predecessors had been in the job. With the evidence of hindsight, Water would reflect on this and realise that half those documents were, of course, uh, about to go off to Moscow. But that's with the evidence of hindsight, which is always very easy. The, the second was, was again, sort of very typically a, a British intelligence anecdote. Water was coming out of his club, The Travellers, going up Pall Mall, to the next club or passing the next club, which happens to be the Athenaeum. And as he was walking along the street, suddenly heard a familiar voice, which was Philby, uh, calling out to him saying, Water, old boy, come up and have a really good vintage with me. And they looked up and there on the balcony overlooking the street was one Kim Philby with a bottle of, of wine in one hand and and a glass another, and in his very personal way, telling a colleague that the time was right to get a bit drunk together. What is interesting is that I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that, that obviously I drew on, on sources other than uh, personal papers and, and memories and interviews. There was a book published in the late 1990s uh, by my colleague and good friend Rupert Allison uh, under, under his pseudonym Nigel West, um, with Oleg Sarev, who was an ex-Soviet officer, called the Crown Jewels, which will be familiar to some of you. And in the Crown Jewels, for what is worth, are some some KGB files. And in those KGB files, I I came across the mention of Walter Bell in a report that, that Philby sent to Moscow. And it, it, it is an extraordinary extraordinary piece of of very very short information. But in it, Philby reports to Moscow Center. Waterbell is responsible for liaison with OSS. This is a report he sends to Moscow, by the way, in 1943. So so this is Philby talking about what, what he knows about Waterbell to his Moscow masters. Waterbell is responsible for liaison with the OSS, is extremely dissatisfied with his job, 
as it offers little scope for originality. It has some compensations, however, in that it involves a certain amount of entertaining, and Bell is a bit of a playboy. His political attitude, however, is Marxist. Now, confronted with this, like with everything else of Philby, you have to sort of basically pull yourself back and say, you know, what, what is Philby up to writing this if, if we accept that this is a genuine KGB document? And I came to the conclusion that far from recommending Bell for recruitment, Philby appears to have sent a veiled warning to his Russian masters that despite Bell's, Bell's Marxist politics, which after all, most of his generation had anyway, uh, there was nothing to suggest from what Philby knew about Bell uh, to suggest that he had the making of a double agent. And because he knew that Bell might have been socialist, but he was definitely anti-communist. He knew what Stalin was up to. He's left that in his papers, clear as daylight. And I think Philby was basically telling Moscow, I know this guy, look at me, aren't I clever? I can give you a thumbnail sketch of Bell along the same thumbnail sketches I've given of other colleagues. But this guy... I'm not going to recruit because I don't trust him to do the work for me and to do the work for Moscow. Uh, but I've, I found that sort of quite an intro, interesting insight. Now, of course, the, the third Cambridge spy, which is very critical in this story, is Donald McLean, because in, in, in 1946, after the war, Walter Bell, in another stage of his career, found himself as private secretary to the then new British ambassador, Lord Inverchapel. At a time when McLean was already, as you know, in the Washington Embassy, he'd been there uh, for over a year under the previous ambassador, Lord, Lord Halifax. And initially, both Bell, Bell struck up a, a good collegiate relationship with Donald McLean, like the rest of the embassy, without a clue that he was working for the Russians. And, and that's a story that's been well documented. I think with the evidence of hindsight, one can blame Bell for, for, for not knowing it. But, but, you know, did anybody else know it at the time until Venona came along and, and the decrypts came along and, 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 and Sijin played its part? Uh, and, and, you know, the, the FBI started getting some, some people with more information about the whole thing. Uh, but the fact is, at the time, uh, as I describe it, he got on very well with McLean. Both McLean, McLean was obviously married to an American. And when when McLean was still in the in in Washington, it was when Walter Bell met Tatty Bell, his future wife, who of course was American as well. Describe Walter Bell's marriage to Tatty and their first posting to Kenya. Well, I mean, Tatty, who you know, I had the great honor and privilege to have known as a, as an older lady in her married life, widow widowhood, and in her final days, was and you can tell it by the photographs, was obviously a stunningly beautiful older daughter of, of General Karl Marx. That's an extraordinary catch for a then thirty. Uh, five 36-year-old English bachelor uh, who was Walter Bell. The young Tatty was 26, well-educated in, in a good liberal school in the States, um, and who had had her own war, extraordinary, extraordinary war. From the minute the war had broken out, she had begged her father that she she didn't want to stay in the States, she didn't want to go to another university or, or, or simply stay with the safety of being in the States. She wanted to go where the action was. 
And she went with the mobile units with the American bases, handing out donuts and American beer and playing rock and roll to your great countrymen who were then in American bases in places like near Cambridge and other places. And the Life magazine, I dug up this wonderful, which is pure kind of psychological warfare or good propaganda, but Life, Life magazine gave a huge spread at the time to the mobile unit girls handing out donuts to the American forces. And so she'd done her bit for the cause, as it were. Uh, she was clever. She had a kind of Vivian Lee beauty about her. And, and obviously, Walter moved in, not for the kill, but for the marriage, you know. And a marriage that lasted 56 years tells you something about how close they became. They became not just a married couple, but they became a partnership. And uh, their first assignment together was to Kenya. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, by that time, Walter had finished his assignment in the Washington Embassy as private secretary to Inverchapel and had moved from MI6 to MI5 at a time when MI5 had been given by the then British Prime Minister uh, priority status over MI6 in the colonies or the former, former colonies in what we call now the twilight of empire. It was MI5 and their stations around Africa, for instance, that had priority status over any other intelligence operation. So Walter finds himself in Nairobi in the build-up to what was became one of the greatest and bloodiest challenges to uh, British colonial rule in Africa, which was the Mau Mau Rebellion. And what's interesting about his time there, he left before the actual eruption of the rebellion, but his reporting uh, to MI5 was saying all the, all the time, we've misread the situation here. Uh, there is a very strong African nationalist movement uh, nascent here, <clears throat> which has a lot of uh, support, and we've got to deal with it in, in another way than just suppressing it. But MI5 was playing the kind of understanding, intelligent, analytical role that one expects of good intelligence services, and not necessarily agreeing with their political masters at the time. And I find this particular chapter in his career very, very interesting because it plays to a key part of, of as we all know, of the history of intelligence is, is to what, at what points do the, the guys on the ground question the political decisions of their masters, which has become the oldest story in the book. But in, in, in Walter Bell's personal story, his very human story, we get constant uh, questioning by Walter about some of the decisions that were being taken back in London and indeed by his colonial masters. So after his first posting to Kenya, uh, Walter went on to be posted in both India and in the Caribbean. What were some highlights of those assignments? Well, after after Kenya, his first posting in Kenya, he, he gets sent to India. India, of course, when he arrives in 1952, is, is, is in a sense post-independence India with Nehru leading up the first independent government. We're also, as you well know, the beginning of a, 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 an important period in, in Cold War politics, where India is... Is, is an important flair or, or, or pawn in the whole geopolitical calculations. Nehru officially developing a non-aligned policy, which of course uh, tended to tilt 
occasionally in diplomatic terms towards the Soviets. But behind the scenes, and again, this, this I found remarkable in, in my, my investigations, was the development of a very close relationship uh, between British intelligence uh, and the Indian intelligence, particularly developed with, by Walter Bell with Nehru's, the head of Indian intelligence, B.N. Murik, uh, who, apart from Nehru, was probably the most powerful person in the land. And there, the cooperation was very focused on uh, a much more Western priorities of dealing with Soviet penetration of, of the Indian political system, of the media, of, of certain opposition groups. Uh, and Walter was very much... Uh, at the centre of all that. Uh, he also developed a very close relationship with probably the most important military guy in India at the time, who was General Jashanto Chaudhry, who was Sandhurst trained, of course, in, in the UK, a real Brit through and through, really, and who was also the, the, the recipient and also the sharer uh, of some top secrets to water. That was, of course, India. The West Indies, again, were in the Cold War. Cuba was yet to come uh, when, when water arrives in, um, in, 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 in Trinidad in, in 1956. And, but it's an interesting time, again, in terms of, of British decolonization, because it was an attempt to try and form the so-called federation, the West Indian Federation of, uh, of, all, the, of all the British colonies, which is a way of keeping control uh, on on all those different governments, different islands, under some sort of relationship with British rule, which turned out to be ill-fated and collapsed because you want, Jamaica went one way, Trinidad wanted to go another way. But at the heart of efforts to bring this together and develop the political contacts that at least tried to make it possible was again one Walter Bell, who had was entrusted with developing e-sources at the political level in practically every West Indian island. I suppose one of the, for, for, for American listeners, one, one particularly interesting area that he became involved in was in Guyana, or British Guyana, that became Guyana, which, as you know, in the 1950s became of particular interest to the CIA, and indeed uh, coinciding with Churchill's second premiership, because the uh, the then elected member of government and chief minister, Chedi Chagan, was a Marxist. The CIA didn't like that, Churchill didn't like it, and he was toppled from power, although eventually returned and was elected back into, into government. Walter Bell had a close relationship with, with Chicago, which undoubtedly Walter used as, as access to intelligence, which is of a highly sensitive nature, which would have been shared with the Americans and, and certainly with London. And so after his Caribbean assignments, Walter is posted back to Kenya and played a very important role in Kenya's transition to independence. Well, it isn't of the many unusual aspects of this story is, is uh, this uh, Walter Bell returning to a country he'd been in before, drawing on his experience of the lead up to Mau Mau and, and the contacts that he'd built up. And Kenyatta, the nationalist leader, who was, had been accused by the British colonial authorities in the 1950s of heading up Mau Mau, was the key political figure once he'd been released from jail. And of course, there was a two-way thing here from, from the British intelligence security apparatus point of view. 
there was no better person than Walter Bell, who had been there before, who indeed had advised his bosses that a different approach should be taken to Kenyatta at that time during Mau Mau, rather than the repression that took place. Who, and on the other side, you have Kenyatta himself asking for Walter Bell to come out and advise him on security matters because he sets up a security council and has water placed in it as his prime advisor. And of course, there we have water playing an absolute critical role at a time when Kenyatta, having been yesterday's Mau Mau terrorist, becomes an ally of the West, trying and identifying Soviet infiltration in Kenya, as Somali incursions, attempted military coups by pro-Soviet army officers. Uh, and Walter, all this time, is, is the key intel guy helping Kenyatta keep one step ahead of Soviet intentions, which I found absolutely fascinating. The other person who played a very important role at that time, again, never been disclosed before, was Tati, Tati his wife, her general... Spatz's older daughter, let us not forget, who developed a very close friendship with Kenyatta's daughter, Margaret, who was very into African women's rights, the African women's rights movement, and Tati, call it infiltration, call it simply befriending her, but managed to win the confidence of Kenyatta's younger daughter, uh, probably the most trusted white woman in that outfit. Can you imagine the kind of intel that was coming out of there? Sounds really amazing. And so finally, uh, Walter Bell returns to London and retires. What kind of things did he do in retired life? Well, as you well know, Jim, once in it, you're never quite out of it, are you? It's difficult. but And you don't want, you know, Bell, by the time he officially retired from after his Kenya posting from security and intelligence in the mid-1960s. He was still full of beans and full of knowledge, full of experience, uh, and also was very, very, to the, the great Dick White, uh, one, a, a, a rare case of someone becoming the head of MI5 and also subsequently the head of MI6. He developed a very close relationship with Dick White who asked Walter to basically infiltrate a, a, a strange outfit called Interdoc, which was based in The Hague, uh, which was set up by a former Dutch intelligence chief with, a, with support from funding from the Dutch and also some Western German support. Uh, and it was basically a kind of uh, think tank, research unit, psychops, initially uh, to counter Soviet intelligence and propaganda, uh, run out of The Hague. And Walter was MI6 man in there. Your man, Dulles, of course, was also quite interested in Interdoc and also knew Walter very well from World War II. And I think Walter was also reporting to the Americans because it was at a time when there was a lot of suspicion that Western German intelligence had been infiltrated by the Soviets. The Americans in particular, but the Brits, didn't completely trust the Dutch either. And, and there was Brian Crozier, of course, who began to suspect that Interdoc itself had been infiltrated by the KGB or was close to being uh, infiltrated by the KGB. And water was in the thick of all that period, which I find absolutely fascinating. But the second, I suppose, key part of his so-called retirement years was at the beginning of the 1980s when British intelligence, and, and your people know this much better than I do, the reputation of British 
intelligence had been literally pulled through the mud by the revelations of the Cambridge Five. Our own relationship with our friends across the uh, the pond was was under under challenge to put it mildly. We had one James Angleton who I think as a result of his betrayal by Philby had lost the plot ready, but who was seeing reds under every single bed, uh, spreading rumours that British intelligence was far more infiltrated than just the Cambridge Five. And it was at a time when I think I blame Anglesey, but certain British journalists began to uh, speculate that, for instance, Roger Hollis, the then MI5 chief, uh, was indeed probably the sixth or seventh man, that Guy Liddell, who was uh, his deputy, but who'd been the head of counterintelligence during World War II, liaising with the FBI and the Americans, uh, was was another Soviet infiltrator. And Dick White and Water, this again was in Water's papers, it's never seen the light of day. Orchestrated, say these, use no other term, but a damage limitation exercise of, of the ones that we are familiar over the years in terms of collaring certain journalists in the British media, uh, briefing them and making sure that they wrote that this was basically nonsense, you know, that, that Horace was not a Soviet agent, that Lidl was not a Soviet agent. And then, in fact, what was going on was that the, 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 the Soviets, with one Philby playing his role back in Moscow, uh, was simply generating this extraordinary sense of distrust, of displacement, and trying to, to drive a horse and, horse, horse and carriage at complete divide between the Americans and the Brits, fueling the distrust of the Americans, of the so-called club land of, of in London, which had made way for Philby and the Cambridge Five, big doubts about whether you lot could trust us lot. But I think water here comes through, I think, as a true friend of America, with which I identify. Walter always had, despite his socialist days at the London School of Economics, uh, despite his beliefs during the Spanish Civil War against Franco and, and all that, he was a firm believer, which he developed when he was living in, in New York and in Washington, uh, of the essential values, the best values, at the heart of, of American democracy and that the importance of the special relationship. And he was, I think, a, a very important person in terms of interpreting uh, the UK to the Americans and interpreting the Americans to the Brits. And as you know, as I said earlier, Richard Dearlove couldn't, couldn't put it better. He was, because of that, a hugely important cog in this machinery of, of intelligence history. His relationship with the OSS, his relationship with the FBI, his later friendships with key CIA officers. I, I think Walter deserved his Medal of Freedom, which is why I, I read the citation. It still stands. No one's ever taken it away from him. He is remains a CMG, which, as you know, is one of the highest honours given to any British civil servant. Call me God, they say in Whitehall, to those who get the CMG. And the fact was that he was privileged and honoured to have been married to one Tatty Spatz, who was happened to be the favourite daughter, the oldest daughter, of one of the great World War II American generals. Well, the book is entitled A Faithful Spy, and it is a wonderful description of a life and a career very well spent. I want to thank Jimmy Burns for a really 
fascinating description. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much for the time for the city. Thank you very much. AFIO is a small, nonprofit, apolitical, educational organization whose main mission is to help prepare the next generation of intelligence officers to confront the challenges our nation faces in the years ahead. To learn more or support our outreach programs, visit www.afio.com.